I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World, according to my guests today, we're a, quote, nation of victims. And I have to tell you, I wondered a little bit what he meant by that. The premise of his new book is, quote, Hardship is now equated with victimhood. The pursuit of excellence and exceptionalism are at the heart of the American identity. And the disappearance of these ideals in our country leaves a deep moral and cultural vacuum in its wake. But the solution isn't to simply complain about it. It's to revive a new cultural movement in America that puts excellence first again. I've always agreed We are a country founded by American exceptionalism, and I also believe that instilling those values in future generations will continue America's competitive leadership in the world. Here to discuss his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Vivek Ramaswamy, somebody who I really enjoyed about 13 months ago when we discussed his first New York Times bestseller, Woke Inc. He is the author of the new book, Nation of Victims, Identity, Politics, the Death of Merit, and the Path Back to Excellence. Vivek, welcome, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. When we last spoke, you had created an instant bestseller. What do you think it was about Woke Inc. that really resonated with people? Well, you know, with Woke Inc., I actually told a lot of just personal stories, right? I had been a CEO in elite corporate America. I had founded a biotech company, built it to a multi-billion dollar business, had been a hedge fund partner before that. And, you know, I wasn't a political writer. I wasn't a political commentator. I was someone who was lifting the veil on my own experiences out of a sense of obligation, right? I had been educated in America's elite institutions, had built companies, had built personal wealth, as a relatively young person. So I think that part of the personal narrative around that is what made the book interesting to others. For me, actually, the heart of the book, though, was in its thesis, that companies were cynically exploiting these progressive one-sided agendas to aggregate power, sometimes to make an extra buck, but at the expense of American democracy. And at the end of the book, I have to admit, I didn't fully address the other side of this, which is that it takes two to tango. Yeah, businesses can exploit a populace, But at the end of the day, why is the general populace buying into it? What is it about our culture and our national psyche that causes us to fall for this otherwise obvious trick they're playing? That's what this new book is about, was the spread of that victimhood identity. But in any case, I think of it as a sequel to Woke Inc. and the second step of a journey for me out of the world of biotech and into the new world that I'm in now. Well, you know, you talk about how you became conservative in the sixth grade because of Jack Welch, who was then the CEO of General Electric. I mean, Not many sixth graders are paying attention to Jack Welch. 
What happened? It was a bit of an oddity. I mean, my dad was working at the GE plant in Evendale, Ohio. My dad's one of the smartest people I've ever met, probably always will be, but he wasn't somebody who was particularly career ambitious. He enjoyed his job as an engineer. He went in, did his part, did his job, didn't complain, didn't gripe that somebody else got the job because of their factors that were not as good as his and complain about it. No, he just went in, put your head down, work, do a great job, the ideal employee for any business. At the same time, Jack Welch then took over GE, applied his protocol to be able to cut costs, increase profitability of the firm. My dad went into work one day and they said, look to your left, look to your right. Everyone in the room, one of you will be left standing by the end of the layoffs. And for him, that was, you know, he's a first generation immigrant, did not come here with more than $10 in his pocket. He had two kids. This was a curveball that GE threw into his life. And we knew that that came from on high on Jack Welch. So my dad didn't know him, I didn't know him, but he played a big role in our family's life. So my dad decided to go to night school. He went 40 minutes each way to Northern Kentucky to take law classes because it turned out there was a shortage at GE of patent attorneys. So he went, spotted that opportunity for himself, enrolled in night school, thought this was going to bring greater job security, less risk of putting food on the dinner table for the family. And you know what? My mom had to watch my little brother, so he took me with him to the law classes. And so I would sit in the back of the class and listen to him ask questions. And then we'd drive back at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night back to Cincinnati from Kentucky. And you know what? My dad's pretty liberal. And so he would sound off on Anton Scalia and Clarence Thomas. And there's something about being in sixth grade that makes you want to take the other side of your dad. And in a certain way, that's kind of how I backed into accidentally becoming the conservative in the family because I had to play counterpart to my dad. And you know, it's funny. That's the story of how Jack Welch turned me into a conservative. I never met the guy, but that's how it happened. Well, you know, I mean, some people could have looked at that ruthlessness and said, that makes me a socialist. If only government owned General Electric. It did begin with a complicated relationship with capitalism for me, right? You know, GE didn't actually do well in the years that followed. Jack Welch, and I respect him as a business leader, but if we're just going to describe some of the facts here, he cashed out big. He made out, you know, nine figure, maybe more in personal wealth out of that. But he cashed out at the top where GE was loaded with a lot of debt. A lot of the businesses had had a lot of the innovative juice squeezed out of them because of the cost cutting. And GE was on a one-way decline ever since the moment he left. My dad's you know, whatever amount they gave for pensioners of stock in the company. I mean, it was slashed to a tiny fraction of what it was at the time that my dad decided to go to law school because of Jack Welch's layoffs, which supposedly accounted for the stock price increase. So I'm not going to bear any illusion about the fact that my relationship with capitalism and my views of it were at least somewhat complicated, even in my high school and college years. I then got my first job after I graduated in 2007, in the fall of 2007 at a hedge fund in New York City, on the eve of the 08 financial crisis. And I will tell you that having been through that one, two, three punch, it would leave someone possibly quite disillusioned with capitalism. But for me, it actually had the opposite effect. And especially the 2008 piece of this for me was a wake up call to the fact that what we saw play out in the aftermath of that crisis, that was not capitalism. That was some distortion of state force combined with capitalism to create a new form of corporatism. I don't know where you were on this, Newt. I mean, I was at the time and remain a staunch opponent to the government bailouts under a Republican administration at the time, by the way, that saved the banks when times went bad. But when times went good, the bankers made a lot of money where everyone else was making ordinary salary. But when times went bad, you know, the rest of the country had to bail out the bankers at the public fisc. That was when I really woke up. It was the first start of the journey that I've since been on to say that, you know what, that's not capitalism. That is a new form of crony capitalism. And what we might want to revive is the true system of free market capitalism that allows people to win and lose based on their successes and achievements rather than government picking favorites. It's really a form of corporate welfare. I mean, you had the Secretary of the Treasury came from Goldman Sachs. The White House Chief of Staff came from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was in the meetings with the Federal Reserve in New York. I mean, the challenge of in part is that both parties had too much corruption. The same thing that happened with 9-11. Both parties were too guilty to actually publicly get to the bottom because each had a deal. I'll protect you. You protect me. That's exactly it. That was the thesis at the heart of Woke Inc. You mentioned Goldman Sachs. The first chapter of my last book was called The Goldman Rule, which refers to not the golden rule that you and I know, but the Goldman Rule, as I called it, that he who has the gold makes the rules. In 2008, it was Goldman Sachs. Today, it's BlackRock, but it's the same story in new clothing. I think that calling it out is half the battle. After I did write Woke Inc. and rolled it out, I did start a new business. You know, you may be familiar with this as well, Strive, that's competing with BlackRock. So I don't want to just be writing books. I want to be solving this through the market. But writing the books is important, too, because it also reveals the why, the 
philosophical worldview for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then that's what led me to this new book with Nation of Victims and the Path Back to Excellence. I'm curious because you're so obviously bright and driven. How do you divide your time between your market-free enterprise activities and your intellectual book writing activities? Yeah, it varies. So I have a lot of trouble, Nude, I have to admit, switching the channel quickly between the two. It doesn't work for me when I'm in day-to-day business building mode to have the kinds of ideas to write a book like Nation of Victims that I did. So the text for this book was mostly submitted around January, February of this year, subject to some tweaks. You know how this works from writing your own books too. It takes a long time to publish. Turned out it was around January, February that I got my new business off the ground, Strive. And so I've probably been working about 120 hour weeks ever since then. The first break that I took from that was this week and that break constituted doing a book tour for this book. But that's what my break from the business looked like. But right now I'm definitely in a phase of, you know, between 100 and 120 hours a week, hunker down building the team here in Columbus, Ohio, around the clock, getting Strive off the ground. But I did take a little vacation to launch this book this week. I always tell young people, you are guaranteed by your creator the right to pursue happiness which is an active verb, and you can have the biggest dream you want, but just remember, the big dream takes a lot of work to become a big reality. And everybody I know who's successful works hard. I don't know anybody successful who doesn't work hard. You know, it might work that way in other countries where success is bestowed upon you through intergenerational means. That was the old world European way. In some ways, it's the modern Chinese way, right? China doesn't have the great tradition of philanthropy, doesn't have the great tradition of the self-made man that you see in the United States. But at least in the American way, the way the American dream works is you can pretty much achieve anything you ever want with your own hard work, your own commitment, your own dedication. That is the American dream. I think we have forgotten that dream. As I sometimes say, when you wake up from a dream, you remember what it felt like, but you forget what it was all about. I feel like we're in a phase in our national history where you can still remember what that dream felt like, but you forgot what the dream actually was. And if I have one goal above all else, I'm going to have to tell you it is reviving that dream for the next generation of Americans. Part of that is by living it. And I didn't think I was going to start another business. I thought I was done after I had built my biotech business. I thought I was moving on to writing books. But At the end of the day, I said, look, we can shine a spotlight on the problem and complain about it all we want. We also have to lead by example. And for me, much more appealing than politics was to do this through the private sector, where you're actually in charge and able to bring competition to the market. So, you know, that's what led me to this second career phase of mine, where I guess I'm back at it in the business world again. So tell us intellectually, how did you migrate from woke to nation of victims? What was the thought process? I had some incomplete work at the end of Woke Inc., right? Woke Inc. was all about spotting the problem. The final chapter of Woke Inc. was a chapter titled, Who Are We? That was the name of the chapter. And the thesis of that chapter was that actually the real diagnosis for all of the woke epidemic was a black hole of identity at the heart of the American soul, where I'm part of a generation of millennials. People younger than me are part of a generation of Gen Z that is hungry for a cause, hungry for purpose and meaning and identity, yet in a moment in our history where the kinds of things that used to fill that hunger for purpose, things like faith or patriotism or hard work for that matter, or family, whatever it might've been, those concepts have receded in American life. And that's what leaves this black hole of a vacuum that allows wokeism or scientism or climate religion or whatever it may be to fill that hunger for purpose and meaning. Well, that was a diagnosis, but the solution I didn't really get to in Woking. And and I think the solution to me was, how do you then fill that void with something more rich and more meaningful that dilutes the poison to irrelevance? And in a certain way, I have to say that it was a look in the mirror where I was looking in the mirror and I was doing a great job. Cable television would have me on every other night and, you know, pointing out some hypocrisy or other on the other side. But if I look in the mirror and ask myself, how much am I actually moving the ball forward for the American revival just by intellectualizing easy hypocrisies I could point out on the other side? That's easy to do. The hard part is actually offering an affirmative vision for what it means to fill that vacuum of American identity. That's what I wanted to do. And you're not going to do that in a five minute hit on television. I had a best shot about doing it in a book. That's what this new book is about. The way I describe the fact that victimhood has become the new American national identity but we can fill that void of national identity with a new one, the shared unapologetic pursuit of excellence. And the unapologetic piece of this nude is pretty important. It's not just the pursuit of excellence. It is the pursuit of excellence without having to apologize for it because it is that apologist culture that I think infects the heart of the American soul and has caused us 
to abandon this idea that we call American exceptionalism. You could have written a book on becoming a nation of winners again. That's effectively what this is, actually. The second half of this book is that. I think that it's important before you offer a solution to see the problem with clear eyes. So what I do is I first lay out the victimhood cancer across America. That's the first third to the first half of the book. What I then do is, though, I take a step back and say, let's take, and you'll like this, given your <laughs> academic background, we take a tour through history, dating back to post-Civil War Reconstruction-era history in the United States, when a lot of these victimhood narratives began in the back of jurisprudence that caused people to see themselves as victims, starting in the Reconstruction era, in the back of 14th Amendment jurisprudence, substantive due process. We go through all of that. But I even go further back. I go to Roman history. I hadn't remembered this since I studied Latin for the first time in junior high school, I could hear my Latin teacher from eighth grade in my ear. There was no one rise or one fall of Rome. There were many rises and many falls. And to those who try to make the lazy analogy to say the fall of the American experiment is like the fall of Rome, maybe you'd actually be well served to study the actual history. And what I say is we're not quite done with this American experiment yet. We might be at a nadir here, but just like there were many rises and many falls, it depends on actually what we do in those moments. And so one of the things I loved about going back to history is it takes the controversy, the partisan controversy out of the proximal present. And I tell the story of emperor known as Septimius Severus, for example, one of many stories I tell. He was known to me when I first studied him in high school as the black emperor. One of the things I discovered when doing research for this book is it wasn't until the last few decades that he was actually named the black emperor. <laughs> it's true that he had dark skin. But to the Romans, that was like having dark eyes or having dark hair. It was just another visual feature of a person. What the Romans cared about wasn't whether you were a member of a particular race. They didn't even see it in that term. They cared about whether you were a citizen of a nation. And I think that that was a telling attribute for how the Romans were able to use the concept of the nation as something that got them through their toughest times rather than resorting to fractious, genetically defined differences. And the funny thing about it is, he only became the black emperor when a TV series in the last 20 years, you know, had this tagline for this great television special they wanted to promote where they said, the first black man to walk the shores of England came not as a slave, but as a conqueror with some inspiring music in the background. In some sense, he was the black emperor we needed in our time of being obsessed with identity politics rather than recognizing, actually, he happened to have been one of the most brutal conquerors in Roman history, including of African slaves, a part that they didn't tell you. But the funny thing is that the positive message we ought to have taken away from it is they didn't care how he looked. He was a Roman. And one of the things I asked in this book is, when did Rome fall? Was it at the end of the Western Roman Empire? Did it live on for another thousand years, continuing with the Eastern Roman Empire? Maybe Rome was reincarnated in 1776. You know, nations don't die the way human beings do. They have a chance to be constantly reborn as something else, especially nations like Rome and nations like America that are built on ideas rather than on arbitrary geographic boundaries. And so when you go through history, then you come back in the second half of the book about this path to excellence, the path back to winning. You know, it doesn't land on deaf ears, but hopefully I use the history in the middle of the book to open up some hearts and minds, which is what I was at least trying to do with this. I have to take you to one particular area because I've written three novels built around the Gettysburg campaign. And you use Gettysburg as a turning point in a fascinating kind of way that I think it's worth taking a minute for you to sort of share how you see Gettysburg as being, in a way, a launching point for victimhood. It's an interesting story, and we probably won't even do it justice here in a conversation. I'd really encourage everyone to take a look at my take on it in the book. Competing historians can have competing views of this, but I tell the story of a general known as General Longstreet. And, you know, people remember Stonewall Jackson in the South as a hero, Robert E. Lee as a hero. Well, this was actually the guy who won most of the battles in the Civil War for General Lee through a tactical offense through defense. He was patient. He wasn't as flashy as Stonewall Jackson. He wasn't as much about building his own name up. But at the end of the day, he was the one who actually encouraged Lee, he begged him <laughs> to a fault to exercise discretion at Gettysburg, to not fall prey to the hubris of making that push. Lee overruled him. Lee recognized he was wrong. And in fact, he was riding his horse as his men were being shot, saying, this was my fault, this was my fault. But actually, as the story got told, in some ways, history isn't just written by its winners. History is often written by its losers. And at the end of the day, Lee and Jackson were Southern Confederate heroes, while Longstreet, the guy whose advice might have actually led them to be more successful, you know, effectively was bearing the cross as the guy who bore the responsibility as the victim of that story. 
And later on, he was actually great friends with Grant. This is one of the things I didn't know until refreshing my history for writing this book. I mean, these guys were friends. I mean, even at the point where they were negotiating the terms of surrender, they were playing cards with each other. You know, Grant actually made a case for Longstreet to be pardoned. It's a beautiful story where you think about these generals on either side, the iconic generals as enemies. Actually, they were each just doing their job for their respective sides who they saw their national loyalty to. But at the end of the day, they were human beings that still had deep respect for one another. But it turned out that Longstreet actually, he ended up being in the post-Civil War era, one of the people who actually quelled a rebellion by a number of KKK predecessors in Louisiana. And he became very unpopular in the South as a consequence, where in some ways we create the villains through history that we need. We tell ourselves the story we need about the Black Emperor, even though that wasn't the story at the time. The South then for half a century told itself the stories about how they lost the Civil War because of James Longstreet, when in fact he might have been their hero, the hero that they actually needed, instead creating the villain that they needed instead. And in the wake of this, and it's a longer story to how this kind of gave rise to the start of American victimhood narratives. I think I talk about the lost cause narrative in the South in some ways as the first true modern American victimhood narrative, the victimhood narrative of the post-Civil War South, but how that then gave rise to new black victimhood narratives in response, which then created new victimhood narratives that then created a cascade getting us to where we are today. So I love going through the history though, because in a certain sense that gets us past the conservative liberal boundaries through which we're committed to viewing every issue today to sort of take a more holistic American perspective. This is a book is made for people who enjoy history much more than Woke Inc. was, let's just say that. But if that fits you, then I hope it's a book that you'll enjoy and learn something from. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. I mean, one of the fascinating points you make that I had not thought about the way you wrote it 
is that the 14th Amendment's due process clause open up sort of a whole bag of worms that we're still trapped in. Exactly. So yeah, this is an interesting and untold story. I don't believe any other legal historian has covered this ground, but you know, there was the privileges and immunities clause in the 14th Amendment. And this is what I thought the writers of the 14th Amendment actually intended to be the most important of the clauses, the reason he put it first. What are the privileges and immunities of citizenship? And I think that is the question we have yet to answer, we need to answer today. What does it mean to be a citizen of this country? What are the privileges, what are the immunities, and what are the duties associated with citizenship? Unfortunately, we never had a chance to answer that question because of a really bad decision in the case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, where the Supreme Court effectively said that was just an administrative clause of the 14th Amendment. But what that created was a need for the court to then find all of its answers through the substantive due process clause. And I think that was the beginning of the death of our jurisprudence in this country. Speaking of Antonin Scalia, who we spoke about before in the context of my father, this was probably one of his life's work was to point out the the legal betrayal at the heart of what you call substantive due process. That's what ultimately led to Roe v. Wade, identifying substantive rights in the due process clause that never existed in the Constitution. But what the due process clause and substantive due process says is that, okay, there are certain rights that the Constitution basically has to guarantee. The court could have gone to the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. That would have made more sense that if you're a citizen of this country, and by the way, the beauty of that is it didn't say all persons. It said all citizens. So what are the rights that you gain as a citizen of this country? That's not just a human right. Human rights are a different thing. Human rights aren't codified in the Constitution. Human rights are a colloquial discussion. But what are the rights that if you're a citizen of this country, you ought to enjoy? The court never really took that up, even though that's what the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted them to take up. And instead, the court just started making up all kinds of invisible rights, like the right to privacy or whatever that was codified in the right to have an abortion in Roe v. Wade, that I think led us down a path to say that you know, a lot of the victimhood narratives and identity politic narratives and even the racial, you know, equality that we have to locate into some of the jurisprudence came from this idea of substantive due process, which I think in this new court now is maybe in the process of being turned around. If you look at the kinds of things Clarence Thomas has been saying in the wake of Roe's overturn, you know, the, the problem is it took us a century and a half to get there. But a lot of the victimhood narratives that were created in the last century and a half, I trace back to some of the failed jurisprudence around substantive due process relating to the early cases around the 14th Amendment. One of the things you point out in terms of people who, in effect, have been substantively cheated is that Asian Americans are being discriminated against in college applications. But the left, which was historically against discrimination, says and does nothing about it. Absolutely. And look, I think that there is an anti-white discrimination problem in top universities, but the anti-Asian discrimination problem is even bigger if you just look at the numbers. And, you know, the average SAT score required to get into a top college if you're an Asian American applicant relative to a black one is over 400 points. And for a test that's only 1,600 where you can't get less than 500 if you try, you, know, you have to try really hard to get less than 500, that's a huge swing at the end of the day. And they call it, you know, Harvard, it, this is one of my alma maters, certainly used to call this version of the problem, the Jewish problem. They effectively say the same thing about Asians now. They have an Asian problem. And my view is, you know what? If you apply meritocratic criteria to get the best athletes, the best musicians, and of course the best academics, and they all turn out to be one skin color or another, I could care less at the end of the day. Because you know who isn't applying DEI criteria to their college admissions? China, okay? China is applying the meritocratic principles that used to describe this country. And in a certain sense, it makes me both sad and worried as a country to see our culture of excellence and exceptionalism leap oceans to lift up places like China. Well, ironically, the Maoist culture of victimhood in China has now leapt oceans to depress the United States. But you know, I think part of the goal of identifying the problem is to see it with clear eyes. Once you see it with clear eyes, you can say that, all right, if not out of desire, then out of necessity, we're going to have to find that path back to meritocracy and excellence. And that's the case I make in the book. I happen to agree with you about the importance of meritocracy and the idea that you know people who work hard and succeed ought to be able to work hard and succeed. It's fascinating to me that none of these principles of quotas are applied in athletics. It's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't have a quota for short white basketball players. Or for skinny Asian kids with glasses to be on the football field either. Think about it. So athletics, in a way, is the last stand of a kind of meritocracy of achievement. I mean, if you can do it, you can do it. And if you can't, you can't. 
everyone told me I wasn't allowed to write this chapter, but I have a chapter on black victimhood in this book. I think you cannot have a thorough book about victimhood culture in the United States without taking a clear-eyed lens at black victimhood. They say you can't write that because you're not black. I don't believe in those kinds of distinctions. I think that if you actually care about black lives in this country, you're going to have to talk openly about the culture of victimhood that permeates much of black America, especially in the inner city and other poor and disempowered communities. And I can go into that, Newt, but one of the things I do in the chapter that comes, I think, right after that is I have a separate concern about the spread of victimhood culture to the right. And just as much as we have a black victimhood culture in this country, we also have an emerging version of white victimhood culture to say, well, you know what? You guys claim those grievances. Well, guess what? We're going to claim bigger grievances in response. And then you know what? The Asians are now getting in on the game too. So my parents came to this country as immigrants. I was first generation. When I look at my kids' generation, the second and third generations, they're coming up with their own victimhood narrative saying, well, I'm actually a person of color and I've been through all kinds of hardships that, by the way, is your grandparents who went through the real hardship coming halfway around the world without a dime in their pocket to be able to make the life that you enjoy today. Yet you're the one spinning up the victimhood narratives. And so my concern is that rather than seeing, for example, the conservative movement rise up, or even second generation Asian Americans rise up and say, you know what, we're going to defeat victimhood with excellence and meritocracy. Instead, it's going the other way around. <laughs> the spread of victimhood is defeating the spread of excellence, and everyone is playing the victimhood Olympics, and there is no gold medalist in the American victimhood Olympics. America as a nation is the loser in the end. And that was another chapter that people told me not to write about, right? Well, you know, your conservative base isn't going to like this chapter about conservative victimhood. I don't care if... <laughs> If the liberals don't like my black victimhood chapter or people who follow me to date don't like me talking about conservative victimhood, I think we all have to take a look in the mirror, take a long, hard look at ourselves, dig deep and ask ourselves what it is that defines our agency as individuals. What is it that defines our identity as Americans? Let's answer that question first before just pointing out the hypocrisies on the other side. And I say this as someone who's actually been guilty of this myself. I'm great at pointing out hypocrisies and woke ink of the other side. But how much are we actually doing to revive American identity? Only a little bit by playing the hypocrisy on the other side game. I think we need to look inside and ask ourselves how we are going to overcome hardship rather than claim to be victims in the face of the hardship that we face. And I think that's a mistake that we conservatives sometimes make too often. You know, I think one of the really important points you make that contributes to this whole sense of the decay of meritocracy is that government policies have created a culture of laziness. I happen to think that's true, and I was one of the lead authors of welfare reform, which even the New York Times this week has admitted had a huge impact. The biggest break in children in poverty comes directly as a result of the welfare reform bill that Clinton and I got passed in 1996. But it was all aimed at work. Our response to welfare was work, and as Ronald Reagan once said, a job is the best social policy. From your perspective, though, when you say in your book, government policies have created a culture of laziness. What are you thinking of? What's your focus? I had a bigger picture focus and a nearer term focus. The nearer term focus was just to point out the laughably predictable pandemic policies that incentivized people not to work. But the government bore this illusion that, okay, well, that's going to be temporary. But even if we give people a disincentive to work for a year or two, once we stop giving them those benefits and take them away, suddenly people are going to get off their butts and go back to work again. And one of the facts that surprised a lot of those policymakers is once human beings form a certain habit, once they've grown accultured to living their life in a certain way, they don't respond to economic incentives in quite the same way on the rebound as they did on the decline. And I'm a big fan of, you know, making my audiences a little bit uncomfortable here. And I use this section of the book to do that. Let's remind ourselves that Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders, who said that they would oppose a COVID stimulus package that did not include $2,000 in aid in families instead of $1,600. That was Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. But two people supporting that right alongside them were Josh Hawley and Donald Trump. And I think that while this is a problem that mostly lands at the feet of the Democrats, I think that this is another one where conservatives have to look themselves in the mirror and say, what role did we play in also pandering to the Roman version of bread and circuses? Okay, if the government aid is the bread, then the identity politics is the circus. And I think that the left definitely has more of a monopoly on the identity politics. But both parties have a little bit of blame on the bread problem of throwing bread to the masses. As we often joke, it's never legal to bribe a citizen to vote for you unless you're using government money to do it. And at the end of the day, we have created this culture of laziness. Now, why has that had such staying power. And this is the other part I hit in the book, is that victimhood fits laziness like a glove. And what I mean by that is, actually what's at the heart of this is generational sloth. 
people are lazy. It is one of the human vices. As I even bet in making my business decisions, never bet against the principle of human laziness. When you're doing a partnership with another company, figure out what gets the guy on the other side to get home at five o'clock. That's what's going to get your deal done. But at the end of the day, now this isn't people admitting their laziness. Take a woman like Doreen Ford. Okay, She was one of the leaders of the so-called anti-work movement over the last couple of years during the COVID-19 pandemic. Multiple gender identities, whole nine yards, exactly fits a certain stereotype that you might expect of someone leading this kind of anti-work crusade with a veneer of social justice behind it. But I think that the thing that she says is, and it's worth taking seriously, this is not just about not working. This is about dismantling the oppression of capitalism. This is about taking apart the colonialism of capitalism. That's what this is about. And when you give this attitude of laziness, the moral legitimacy, the moral sanctimony of actually having a moral mission behind it, that's what gives it staying power. So it's not just that people are lazy. They feel like they're morally justified in being lazy. Dare I say, even morally obliged to stick it to the system and dismantle the oppression of capitalism this way. And the sad part about it is government has subsidized exactly that psychological attitude. And even the sadder part about it, it's not just the Democratic Party. The Republican Party bears some responsibility too. Well, it's interesting. We have a program called the American New Majority Project where we do a lot of polling and a lot of focus groups. 76% of the American people believe that you should have to work if you get any federal aid whether it's Medicaid or it's food stamps or whatever it is, if you're not severely disabled, you should have to be working in order to get it, which would be, of course, a revolution in the whole structure of the current system. It's the obvious principle. It's part of the welfare reform that you played a role in passing just as recently as what, a couple of decades and a half ago. That has become a controversial notion today, perhaps even systemically racist, if you ask the right people. At the end of the day, though, I think that we are dressing up what are basic human frailties with moral legitimacy. And that's why I think the cultural aspect of this discussion in this book is so important because we're able to then take off that cultural veneer and smoke out what's actually going on. Once we see that with clear eyes, I'm still an optimist that we're gonna be able to turn this around, but it's not gonna happen automatically. It's part of why you know, I took the trouble to write the book. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. If you look out, say, 20 years and you imagine that we have reestablished meritocracy, we've reestablished American exceptionalism, how do you think it happens? Yeah, I think it doesn't happen through our politics. So I'll give you one of two paths to get there. I'll give you the positive path that I'm hopeful for, 
and then I'll give you the path that I think is more likely. <laughs> the path I'm hopeful for is that it happens through non-governmental institutions like companies, like the private sector, waking up to the fact that the companies, in order to be competitive on a global stage, need to revive that meritocratic culture within. At Strive, this is the competitor I founded to BlackRock, one of the model shareholder resolutions we've said we would support as a shareholder in corporate America's boardrooms is to say that hiring should be based on merit without regard to race, sex, or politics, period. You'd think that's intuitive, but many companies have adopted these racial equity proposals by shareholder force, voted for in favor by BlackRock and others in their boardrooms. Well, I think if we're able to solve this through the market, where people are able to vote with their dollars every day, you don't have to wait till November to vote. You're voting with your investment dollars every day to take this change to the private sector. We might be able to use the market to get companies like Netflix to do a 180. I mean, Netflix earlier this year did a 180 degree turn. And you know what? I've been a critic of Netflix for much of the last few years. But I'm a believer in calling out good behavior when I see it too. Netflix had a disastrous quarterly earnings report early this year. Subscriber growth fell off a cliff, earnings, profits, revenue. And you know what they did? They added excellence to the top of their internal cultural document. And they told their employees, look, some of you may be asked to work on projects that we think have artistic merits that our customers want to see. And if you don't want it, and you don't want to work on it, great, show yourself the door and feel free to work at a different company. That's a company at the epicenter of Hollywood. I couldn't have imagined this company, which I've been a critic of for years, saying that as recently as a year or two ago. So those are the kinds of things that give me optimism, not in our politics, but in the private sector. And maybe I'm biased, Newt, because that's the front that I'm also you know, playing a role in, hopefully helping to create through my efforts in the private sector. That's the good version. <laughs> Here's the realist version, is that it may just happen as a matter of necessity. Okay, and what do I mean by that? One word, China. I go through in the book an analogy, a deep study of the Punic Wars, which why do I do this in the middle of a book about American victimhood and American excellence? Well, I think history gives us a lens. And you often hear, you know, the San Antonio Spurs coach, Greg Popovich, a legend. I like the guy, right? He often asks the question, I sometimes think we're Rome. We're in the beginning of our decline. One of the things I say in the book is, we would be so lucky as to be Rome. The real question we ought to be asking is, might we be Carthage? Okay, Rome and Carthage were drawn into a conflict over a little island called Sicily. I wonder whether Taiwan might end up being the Sicily of our era. And we may indulge ourselves through analogies, humble brags, asking ourselves whether we're Rome over a decline. The Roman Empire lasted thousands of years. We're 250 years into our experiment. The question we should be asking ourselves, if we're really giving into these victimhood narratives and giving up on our meritocratic culture, we might be closer to being Carthage than to be Rome. And I think that it might be necessity that serves us up the need to get our act together if we do get drawn into either indirect or, dare I say, direct conflict with China over the course of the next decade. I hope it's not too late, but sometimes it is hardship, including on a geopolitical stage, that provides the shock to the system, the kind of catalyst we need to otherwise wake up from our culture of sloth and being lulled into our sense of incumbency if we're going to break past the incumbency and the victimhood narratives back to winning unabashedly and restoring merit. I hope it doesn't come to it, but it may come to it that a military occasion and a geopolitical occasion is what prompts us to get back on track. No, I think that's a very good analogy. Actually, it'd be a very interesting study of Carthage and Rome. I had some friends who actually, during the Cold War, formed a group that called itself the Carthaginians because they saw the Soviet Union as potentially being Rome, and they wanted to get people to realize that this was a life and death struggle. I'm amazed I didn't come across that. Good for them, though, because they lit a fire. That's kind of what I'm trying to do in this book, is I make a provocative case that, you know what, maybe are we Carthage? I want to light a fire under the feet of the American soul, and hopefully we wake ourselves up out of this sense of entitlement that we otherwise suffer. I think we have two very real patterns of threat. One is the straight-out military defeat, which I think is more possible than the Pentagon thinks. The other is just gradual decay not just with China, but also with India. I mean, the capacity of both of those countries to continue to invent the future is pretty powerful. So here's where I'm going to admit something to you, or I'm going to remind you of something you probably don't know. You said we first met 13 months ago. That was sort of true. We actually first crossed paths about 13 years ago, but you know, you were on a stage and I was in the audience, so you didn't know we met. But I remember two things you actually said during that speech. This might have been when I was a student at Harvard and you might have come to the Kennedy School. You probably don't even remember this. But you said two things. One was, and I've used this phrase for the last 13 years, 
of elegant decay in describing the American decline that could follow the European way. You describe Europe's decline as one of elegant decay, okay? And that phrase stuck with me because that is the second path that you just described right now. And then this is just for fun, but I don't know if you remember this, but the second idea that you threw out for what we should be doing in high schools was you know, take the nerdy guys who were good in math class and give them money so they could go out on a date and become the cool guys in school over the athletes. And let's start the prize system. But, you know, in certain ways, you've been thinking about reviving this culture of merit and exceptionalism more than most. And so I didn't quite use those ideas in this book, but I will say the subtext of those ideas shows up all over this book, actually. Well, Mitch Daniel, when he was governor of Indiana, actually created an annual award for smart people with an annual banquet, with a letter jacket, etc. It's hard to realize now, but the original warning about how bad our schools was is a book called A Nation at Risk, which was published in 1983 by the Reagan administration. And here we are, we're almost 30 years later, and if anything, it's worse. I mean, we have not turned it around. If anything, it is worse. It is worse. The good news is I think there's going to be a domino effect across our culture. It's not like we have to independently solve the market. Then we have to independently solve the culture and education. Then we have to independently do in politics. There's a domino effect. We're a hair's trigger from all of these things going together. But I think it's going to take leadership in each of those institutions. We do have a leadership vacuum of people who are afraid of saying the kinds of things that you and I are saying in their boardrooms, in their superintendent meetings, in school districts. I would say in corporate America. These are the places where we have this culture of fear you know, I wrote a public letter to the board of directors of Chevron last week. It was a shareholder letter to Chevron. I'm engaging with companies across corporate America. And many of these engagements, and even in many of my informal conversations that I'm having with directors and executives across corporate America, is in private. They will tell you how much they agree with me, for example. Hire based on merit rather than these other factors. Focus exclusively on making products and services for profit. Don't apologize for it. Make a profit. Be successful. That is the American way. It's what your actual capital owners want you to do, despite what BlackRock tells you. Privately, all of them will agree. But publicly, you look at many of their statements and their carbon copy prints of what Larry Fink says. I mean, literally carbon copy prints. It's like a cut and paste. And I think that that might sound depressing, but I actually think it's an opportunity. Where once you change the conversation even a little bit, you have a discontinuous leap. It's a quantum leap to changing the culture. And that's why I'm so focused on doing this through the private sector. Because in doing the world of partisan politics, you're confined by the jersey of the team you wear. The other team's jersey tries to characterize everything you say through a partisan lens. I thought of running for office. I said, forget about that. Let's actually pick the lower hanging fruit. And it's not just the low hanging fruit that you then get. I think you get pretty close to the whole tree. Because the domino effect, when everyone else starts saying in public what they already believe in private, we could turn this around quicker than most people think. It's not going to happen automatically, though. I think that's right. And of course, you make a point that I've thought really deserves a lot more publicity and a lot more analysis. And that is that Larry Fink, in many ways, is more destructive than George Soros. The amount of power he wields, his ability to, in essence, blackmail big corporations because of the weight of the number of shares he votes is astonishing and is destructive. In two senses, is it not even close? One is just the scale of capital, right? BlackRock manages, depending on the given day, close to $10 trillion compared to what? $20, $30 billion that even most of the wealthiest billionaires would have. So that's the scale of capital. But the second part's more important. In Larry Fink's case, it is not his money. It is the money of everyday citizens that is being used to advance these one-sided political agendas. Say what you will about George Soros or Charles Koch or anyone else. They're using their money. This guy and BlackRock and his institution, and I think it's true of Vanguard and State Street and Invesco too, they happen to be smaller, but they're every bit as bad on these same metrics, are using other people's money, probably the money of most listeners of this program, to advance values that most of the capital owners would actually find anathema. So I think that that betrayal is quite something else than a wealthy guy using his money to advance a political agenda. You're exactly right. But I have to ask, you've now got both Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims. So what are you beginning to think about as your next book? Well, you're the first person I'm sharing this with, and it's still subject to change, so don't hold me to it. But I'm liking the title of my next book as The Heist, actually. In that book, to the extent that I find some of the time to write this, which I hope, you know, we'll see if I can't do this in the next year. My dream goal would be, you know, to be as productive as someone like you. I want to do one book a year. That would be like my dream scenario. I don't know if I can commit to that. But one of the things I would want to explore in that book is what created populism. I want to thank you. I do want to let our listeners know we're going to have a link to your new book, 
Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I want to right now extend an invitation to you. When your new book comes out, I hope you'll come back and join us again because it's always so fascinating to talk with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. You can get a link to buy his new book, Nation of Victims, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.